This is episode 246 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Going Analog with David Sachs. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. Our episode today is sponsored by My Post Glow, a company that specializes in creating unique, customized keepsakes for the young athlete in your life. Post Glow works with you to design and produce a gift that captures a once-in-a-lifetime moment in the child's life. They combine writing, articles, and photos, and then print the whole thing on metal to create a really durable keepsake something the recipient will truly cherish. The metal prints come in two sizes, 11 by 14 and 16 by 20, so appropriate for display, but not too big to travel with the athlete wherever he or she may go. My Post Glow will work with you to make something you're happy with, including a free design consultation, plus free gift wrapping and shipping. They're also running a special now where 10% off if you order before the 4th of July. I hope you check them out at mypostglow.com. I am so honored to welcome a guest back to the show. David Sachs is with us today. He was with us a couple of years ago with his book, Soul of the Entrepreneur. Uh, But today we're going to talk about his books, The Future is Analog and Revenge of Analog. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be back. Good. So uh, I'll do a very quick bio of you. I think you have the shortest bio of the most accomplished person that I've ever had on the show. David Sachs is a writer, reporter, and speaker who specializes in business and culture. His book, Revenge of Analog, was a number one Washington Post bestseller and was selected as a top 10 book of 2016 for the New York Times, and it's been translated into six languages. He's also the author of three other books, Save the Deli, which won a James Beard Award, The Soul of the Entrepreneur, which we I had David on to talk about a couple of years ago, and The Tastemakers. He lives in Toronto. And I should also mention he writes regularly for Bloomberg Business Week, New Yorker Online, and other publications. So great to have you. Thank you. Yeah, really excited to talk about these two books. I read a lot of the blurbs about the books. And of course, you know, because the books are good, the blurbs are great also. But I was particularly struck by this review on Amazon by not a famous person, or at least I don't know him as being famous, by Josiah McKenzie. And I thought his summary was really good. He said, And I think this might resonate with our audience. He said, I needed to read this book. Nearly three years after the pandemic lockdowns began, I am just starting to process that experience and how it should inform the future we create for ourselves and together. I found David's book 
to be a thoughtful reflection on this time we experienced and an insightful guide moving forward. Which I thought was a really great way to talk about your book that for you also, it was kind of a reflection on what was happening in that very weird time, but also what lessons we can learn from it. So I too found it very useful. Congratulations on the books. I think they're really great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's uh, it's good that somebody's reading the Amazon reviews. I, I really try to avoid them. Um, uh, but, um, you know, that's, that is exactly what I was aiming for right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is that it is, and people shudder at this, it is a book about the pandemic. Uh, it's not a book about uh, the virus and, you know, vaccines and and medicine. It's a book about the thing that we all experienced, which was for some period of time, we all kind of had to live in uh, some version of what had been predicted to be the digital future. You know, that everything that we were going to do in our lives, work, school, community, prayer, entertainment, exercise was done online. It was done through the internet. It was done through devices. And that was sort of what we had been aiming for in terms of, you know, what Silicon Valley and other companies were trying to sell us, what people had been predicting the future would look like. And suddenly it was here. We were all inside of our homes doing podcasts with people from San Diego, as I recall, uh, in the in you know a closet in my mother-in-law's house um uh, the last time we spoke and so now that we've come out of that and returned to some semblance of normality as the sky here fills with smoke in Toronto and I yeah. can barely even breathe outside yeah so much for a normal city yeah this is what it's like to be in California I guess the new normal but as we return to sort of the the physical analog world from most of the things that we're doing and and we're going toward the future and we're thinking about the future as newer technologies like artificial intelligence or um you know new virtual reality headsets are being kind of foistered upon us and people are saying no this is the future how do we <laughs> reflect how do we how can we reflect back on that experience we had um and learn from it and learn what works for us and what doesn't and what we actually need from the future so we're here to talk about the future is analog uh, but you've actually written two books about these issues of, I don't like this terminology so much. I almost prefer to refer to it as real life versus screen life. That's a great way. But we're kind of stuck with, yeah, I don't like that analog is being often positioned as kind of the bad old ways, right? Yeah, it, it kind of has that connotation. Yeah, so I kind of prefer real life with it. But anyway, we're stuck with those uh, two terms, uh, which you've, of course, used in your title so that people understand what the books are about. The first one that you wrote on this topic was Revenge of Analog, uh, which was written before the pandemic, 2016, and which I also really enjoyed. There's one topic that you talk about very specifically in that book that I want to just dive right into here is right at the beginning of the podcast. And that is about this notion that we had or educators had for a while that they should provide digital devices to students. Can you review those experiences for us? Sure. Uh, this is, I think, the one topic that really transcends both books. Um, you know, in the first book, uh, which came out in 2016, it was really about the notion of 
computers, tablets, uh, tablets, especially at the time in classes as the sort of technological key to improving and enhancing education, sort of K through university. And, you know, this is something that had been a goal of people working with technology and even people in the educational sector for decades. Uh, you know, even predating computers, you know, you had Thomas Edison saying that film and radio would be the transformational technologies that would do away with schools and teachers because you could get the best lessons, you know, shown or broadcast anywhere. And and so computers really did a sort of newer digitized version of that, that we constantly hear from politicians um, and, and those sort of advocating in the sector of education, the need for computers, the need for to teach computer skills, digital skills, 21st century skills, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, and that was predicated on the need for more devices, right? And so you had initiatives such as one laptop per child, bringing sort of low power or solar power computers to, to poor children in Africa, um, or you had other initiatives of sort of one-to-one device goals for certain school districts or classroom. Los Angeles sort of famously did it with iPads. Uh, and, and what happened time and time and time and time and time again, whenever the digital devices, whether it was you know mainframes, laptops, um, tablets, phones, were introduced into class is that the gains were nominal or negative, and the and the and the downsides were quite tremendous. Uh, that there was a drop off in engagement and you know learning and information retention and and various other measures of sort of educational progress. Yeah, uh, and this was sort of true for wealthy districts and wealthy countries. It was for poorer countries, and there were sort of these large studies that pulled together studies around the world, and it just kept showing over and over that. You know, introducing computers into a school setting did not make them better and more often made them worse. And there was research and ideas about why this was happening, but, you know, people weren't paying as much attention to it. And I sort of chronicle a bit of that in Revenge of Analog. And in The Future is Analog, which was, again, a book about the pandemic, all of a sudden, I'm sitting at home with my daughter who was then in second grade and first grade because it spanned a couple of years here in Ontario where the schools were closed for a long time. And my son who was in kindergarten. Yeah. Right. Killer. Junior kindergarten, pre-K as you call it in America. You know, he had a he had an iPad that the school gave him. She had a laptop that the school gave her. She was working on an old laptop of mine. They're both in the house. And it's like, this is it. All of the school is online. The teacher is using Google Classroom. They have all these tools. They've been sort of, you know, there were some kinks at first, but they figured out the tech. And this was happening to pretty much every family with kids from kindergarten up through the, you know, university, everywhere in the world, except for like some parts of New Zealand or China for a couple, you know, periods of time. And I mean, find me someone who reflects on that as a positive experience and would point to that and say, this was great. This is where education is heading. Who was there? Who witnessed it? Who was a student? Who was a parent? Who was a teacher? Who was an administrator? Who was an uncle who had a couple of nieces and nephews that they saw doing this? I mean, it was just the absolute worst. And everybody will talk about that and reflect on that with with genuine trauma. I think that's the thing. When you talk to parents who went through it or kids, it's like it was a traumatic experience that was unrelated to the trauma of fear of this sort of sickness and virus going on. And so it was, it, you know, there were these test cases, they were, they were, they were failing, but it was, it was the technology was never there. It wasn't being what you know done wide enough. It wasn't being done the right there at school. And now it's like every school and every student in the world. Yeah. 
every country, you know, Japan, South Korea, Estonia, China, you know, Canada, like poor districts, rich districts, scrappy public schools, Harvard, you name it. They brought it. Some brought the best, you know, tools and devices. And it was, it was just a, a, a gong show. Um, and nobody was keeping it. Nobody was retaining it. Everybody has pretty much gone back to in-person, in-class learning. My children are sitting at school right now in the classroom, in, sitting at desks, writing on paper in front of their teachers. They might be using computers to do some stuff, but like that is what it is. And I think what we learned is that, and, and this is sort of a lesson that I that I carried from one book to another, was it was it was taught to me by a gentleman named Larry Cuban, who I spoke with, who teaches sort of the history of education technology at Stanford. Larry's very experienced is in his, is in his 80s, and he's sort of seen it all come and go. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, the, the thing that we missed, that we were missing first, and we just kind of extrapolated that out during the pandemic and, and exposed everyone to it, was the difference between information and education. Mm-hmm. Information is facts and figures and lessons and, you know, data that computers are really, really good at transferring in all sorts of different ways. You can do it with text, you can do it with sound, you can do it with video, you can do all sorts of different combinations of things, make games. But information is not learning. It's why you can't just pick up an encyclopedia and read it and become a a well-rounded, smart individual. Learning is a relational process. Learning is the relationship that students have to teachers, to each other, to the school, to the community. And that wraps itself around them to make them care about the information that they're learning. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. And I think we all got to see and experience that. Yeah. I'm sorry for chuckling during your answer, but it's true. If we ever wanted a widespread experiment in multiple locations for how this would work, the pandemic provided that. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, at this point, it's just, yeah, the evidence was overwhelming. Well, and I think that's what it is, right? Like we have we 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 owe it to ourselves to look at that period of time and saying, okay, what would it be like if a tremendous percent of our retail purchases, at least for a period of time, were done through online shopping, right? What would it look like if live performance was now strictly something that you access through streaming and not going to a you know concert or a, a, a movie theater or a you know bar to see a band? Um, what would what would this future that we're talking about be like if all of our social engagements were sort of on Zoom, right? What would that look like? And we have the answers because we experienced it. We mm-hmm. all can refer to it and, and companies can say, yeah, we we all did completely remote work. We So we know what parts of it were better and we know what parts of it are worse. Now, how we figure out what goes next is, is the sort of tricky part, right? Um, uh, but we have that data. We have that experience and we owe it to ourselves not to ignore it or sort of brush it off because it was unpleasant. Yeah, I I was very amused. I read the books in reverse order. So I read uh, The Future is Analog and then Revenge of Analog second. And so I was really surprised when I was reading Revenge of Analog that you hadn't sort of exploited the fact that you had really predicted a lot of these things in a revenge of analog. And I thought if you were a lesser person, you would have called your second book, I told you so. I told you so. Yeah, well, <laughs> hindsight. Because really, there is a lot in that first book, you know, where it's tentative, right? Because you didn't have yeah. a lot of data, but 
it was an emerging, you know, I was, I, that, that book really chronicles the, the emergence of this larger trend and the larger trend, which at the time I was starting to notice, you know, in 2007, 2008 and onward, that was sort of the growth once again of non-digital technologies such as vinyl records or, mm -hmm. you know, film or paper products or bookstores that had been written off as obsolete and doomed to the scrap of, of, of history. And suddenly they were starting to grow again and, and people at first were dismissive, but then, you know, that they kept growing and that resilience made me curious about why that was. Uh, and I think, I think it's, it, you know, what we're getting at is like this, the difference of these two narratives around the future, right? Mm -hmm. The digital narrative is a very straightforward and simplistic narrative, which is that, you know, new things are going to, supplant old things and um, the new things are going to be better than the old things. And by moving with the new things, we're going to move into a better future. And the analog one uh, doesn't say that the new things are bad, but it says that there's actually value in the old things, that the old things, the old way of doing things, in this case, non-digital things, right? Mm -hmm. Things you can touch and feel, things that have some sort of physical element to them other than just sort of hardware and software that these things have this sort of enduring value. And that value actually increases the more we integrate digital technology into our lives. You mentioned it early in this conversation about things that were being sold. And I do mm. often suspect that part of this drive toward digital has to do with money, right? In a country that is very, at least here in the United States, that's very driven by money. And so what we're being sold is really a marketing plan and not mm -hmm. really a, a well-reflected consideration of all the aspects that go into real life versus screen life. And one of the things that I often go back to, and I talk about a lot on this podcast, is the complexity of human beings. Mm. And I often say there's nothing more complicated than humans interacting with humans. And I often wonder if there's more happening when we have real life experiences with other people that we just haven't yet understood very well, that there's a lot of power and being in someone's physical presence, that there's a lot that we're gleaning from that or sharing in that experience. Do you have any thoughts about that? Endless. Um, <laughs> Another book. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I think I, I do try to address it in here. I, I think I, I agree with you 100%. You know, yesterday, Apple, the great, you know, the, the, the I would say probably one of the more beloved you know, venerated Silicon Valley companies, like the, the one that really stands in, in a way that is almost altruistic for the sort of future-based innovation that people love. Um, like Facebook is, you know, the devil at this point, but you're like, oh, but I'm we're talking to you on a MacBook and I have my phone here and it's great. Like anyway, yesterday they came out uh, June 6th with, you know, their VR headset thing. Yeah. Uh, and 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 there was the slick two minute video, you know, probably produced by an ad agency for tremendous money. And, you know, it's like the guy cooking and pulling up the screen, the guy working and pulling up the screen and kicking a soccer ball with his kid while like doing some sort of work thing. It's this beautiful, highly engineered headset. And it's just like, what? What? Like, you know, what's more fun than like doing that with a screen strapped to your face? 
doing it without a screen strapped to your face. Yeah. What it's not what you gain by having the screen strapped to your face. What are you missing by having the screen strapped to your face? Mm. And anyone who comes out of the past three and a half years of the world and says, you know what the problem is? We need more time on screens and we actually need the screens strapped to our face. <laughs> well, now the that problem you is you can't way. get away from the screen. So <laughs> let's strap that, that baby to your face. Like that is uh, the dystopian naive and I don't know, profoundly unhuman, cynical, yeah, cynical, yeah. cynical view about the future. And of course it has to do with, you know, Tim Cook's board is telling him how much revenue share, something, 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 right? Yeah. Um, that's fine. That's the world we live in. That's, you know, that, that brought us this technology and, and, you know, here we are using it. If it wasn't for the shareholders of Zoom, we couldn't be talking today. But if there's anything that we learned the value of during those periods of time when we were stuck at home and we could only interact through a screen was the poverty of that existence mm -hmm. and how we all craved the richness of interaction with the world and the richest of interaction with each other. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I went to tremendous lengths to talk to people and see my family and gather with my friends and eat outside in the winter here in Canada and go for walks. And, you know, it was everything. And I think just because we can replace that in some way with a digitized version, the way that we're, you know, we're speaking now through digital technology, this is still a far lesser version than if you were here in Toronto or I were there in San Diego and we were speaking at either of our homes or in a park or a restaurant or by the beach. Um, uh, or out here in the smoke-filled air of Toronto. And that's not going to change, right? That's, I, I think there's this idea of like, if we, if we just make the right technology, we yeah. just get enough people to use it, then people won't care as much about speaking to their children face-to-face. -face. <laughs> it's just not true. You know, we we remain the same creatures. We remain the same big-brained apes that we were hundreds of thousands of years ago when we emerged out of the savannah of Africa and started walking upright a million years ago or whatever. And that relationship to the physical world, those social cues, the, the seen and unseen things, the gestures, the smells, the body language, that has tremendous meaning. It has even more meaning, I think, when you can just take a Zoom meeting, Right. It has more meaning when you can, you know, have a cocktail online with your friends or just text someone. Uh, that makes those real world analog physical interactions much more, that much more valuable. Mm -hmm. And so if we know that and can acknowledge it, then how do we design the way we live our lives in the future around that to take advantage of that and maximize that rather than suppress it? Yeah, there's something, and I think there's a quote in your book from someone who says, I'm going to botch the quote, but she says something like the downfall of baby boomers is that they think that they have to be cool. And I sometimes <laughs> wonder about that, not just baby boomers, but in general, like we're not with it if we don't embrace these new things. Like if we don't go out and say, well, you know, I guess okay, virtual headsets are the thing now, and so, you know, I better get with the program and you know, we want to be cool, but also we don't, we don't want to 
appear to stand in the way of progress, right? That that right. That's sort of our duty. That's the worst thing you can be labeled, right? In today's society, is some sort of luddite. Mm-hmm. How dare you? How dare you question Lord Elon and his his Mars colonies or this? What what Zuckerberg is promising with the metaverse or crypto or something else, right? How, you know, how dare you stand in the way of AI and say we should question it? Um, This is progress and you're, you know, you're holding us back, but progress isn't this inevitable and unquestioned embrace of the new thing. Progress is, comes from the debate about the way that we use our tools and technologies and what our values are. Um, what's important to us, and 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 the best move forward is is to do it in, in a thoughtful way. I mean, imagine if we had put more thought into the consequences of the internal combustion engine and and building a society like California around cars. Um, maybe I wouldn't be breathing ash today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I do sometimes think that there are these conflicts in in humans right it, just in one human right we want to be cool we want we don't want to stand in front of the future but we have these things and these things and sometimes i think some of our inclinations sort of work against our best health mm-hmm. <laughs> that's very human yeah it's very human right and so yeah sometimes we have to be a little hard on ourselves so i'm going to jump into a kind of a roundabout way to talk about this so i went to a a house showing like of a model home in a brand new neighborhood in San Diego a few years ago with some friends of mine who are architects. And so I was quite curious to see their thoughts about the house. This house was very typical for what they're building now in California, these really, really huge houses that essentially have no property that is not covered by house. So your entire property is the house. And the house is enormous, you know, three or 4,000 square feet. And the house was designed essentially so that everything in the house is about you. So it was full of mirrors instead of windows. Uh, the master bedroom was e- absolutely enormous. It was like an apartment. And in fact, it even had a mini kitchen in the bedroom. So it had a sink, <laughs> refrigerator. Yeah, I know. You're starting to laugh. You know where I'm going with this. And then like the bathroom also was just huge and it had an uh, inside exercise gym, you know, full of mirrors. The house was packed with interested buyers and they were raving. As I was walking through the crowd, I could hear people rave about how much they loved this house and, you know, whether or not they could swing a house like this. And the coup de grace was in the bathroom in front of this very large vanity mirror embossed in the tiles in front of the seat where you would sit were the words, oh, so pretty. Hmm. Yeah. And so my friends and I joke about this house all the time when we call it the oh, so pretty house. But what really struck me about this was how internally focused it was. It felt like a retreat, right? Like a place you would leave the world and then just barricade yourself inside. And maybe all you do is just go to bed. There was a huge bed and stream things, right? And I keep thinking about that kind of life separate from the real world and its challenges and its problems and, you know, things that you don't like but that this house offers this kind of safe space for you. And I I think about this house a lot because I think it's really reflective of what people 
often desire, and here I'm going to step it out a little bit and say, but maybe isn't very good for us. I don't know. Um, well, that describes my house exactly. Uh, let me just take you around my, uh, no, wait, no, sorry. It's, it's like we're, we're, we're currently about to underdo a renovation to dig out our basement for an additional 600 square feet of windowless space. Um, luxury. But, um, first of all, you know, you talked about the diversity of humans, like there's something for everyone. Right. And I'm sure two door Dan from that house, there's a beautiful house that's, the opposite of that, or or maybe a, a couple neighborhoods over, right? And that's that diversity is is great. It's like we have, you know, even on the same street, you can go inside two houses that look the same; they'll be totally different. And that's that diversity of human taste, which is not going to change. And the uniformity of it is is not the thing. But I think I think you're getting at at something, right? Which is this idea of this kind of escapism as this trend that's maybe a reaction to again the you know the burning world outside right mm-hmm. it, you know there's this well documented trend of wealthy individuals from silicon valley and the tech industry who are buying and building these bunkers and escapes in former missile silos in the hills of idaho and new zealand um, where they can, you know, live out the next apocalypse with, you know, the best wine cellar and comfort and air purification and missile defense systems or whatever. Wow. This is some Bond villain shit. I mean, wow. it's this is, you know, there's there's a a level of of you know selfishness and cynicism that's, you know, I don't think we've seen on that thing. I mean, outside of like Afghan warlords, you know, it's it's futile, right? It's 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 someone building a castle in some random part of Normandy uh, in the you know 13th century and and stocking it with knights and a moat and and, mm-hmm. and keeping out keeping the world at bay and feasting on mutton. Is this the kind of world that we sort of aspire to? Some people, yes. Most people, no. Right? Mm-hmm. Most people want comfort and space for sure always a little more comfort and a little more space than we have mm-hmm. but we also enjoy seeing other people and 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 being in other places and i think i think that the sort of the digital future and digital technology is really good at delivering those comforts of that isolated experiences right mm-hmm. we saw that in the pandemic it's like Sit at home in your sweatpants. You can order the sweatpants. They'll be delivered in, you know, a few hours. Mm-hmm. You know, watch whatever movie you want. You want some food? Go on Uber Eats or yeah. or whatever. Like click, you know, what you want pad thai, you want sushi, you want sushi and pad thai, and your kids can have hamburgers. Great. Click, click, click. It's all gonna be delivered. You know, it's easy. And and uh, you want to talk to anyone, just call them up and video chat. And you know, you could work, you could work from home, you could work anywhere and whatever. But it's like, but the part that they don't that it fails at is like, well, what do you want beyond that? Yeah. Right. What do you want beyond that? Well, I want to go out and go surfing in San Diego. I want to go for a hike in the hills. I want mm-hmm. to see friends and go to a restaurant, go to like a great taqueria. I want, I want all those things that actually are the things that make me feel the most human. I don't feel at my most human when I'm watching Netflix. I feel entertained. I feel some laughter, a sense of drama or whatever, you know, maybe my, but I don't feel at my most human, right? I felt at my most human today, this morning, when I was playing tennis with my friend, Jesse, ill-advised given the air quality, but 
had to do it. Oh, I and, thought you were going to say, yeah, that you lost. But oh, no. I did. I lose consistently. <laughs> doing one day. I, I'm getting better. I took oh. one out of four games today, and the, okay. and the fourth one was was close. But you know, that's when I felt most alive today. Um, last night, I went to a concert with my wife at a bar nearby of people we know, and saw these two great bands. And like, that's when I felt most alive. And so I live in a smaller house in the city that I live in, even though I could afford a larger house in a different neighborhood, because the neighborhood I live in lets me walk around everywhere and have more contact with people and see more things and be exposed to more stuff. And that's what I love about it. That's why I don't live in the suburbs, because that's a value to me. So even though that house exists, and some schmuck is in it, waking up and feeling pretty, that's not the only house we have, right? And I think we have a choice of what mm-hmm. house we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. That these these are choices that we're making, and obviously there are lots of personal choices that we're making about how we live our lives. And we know ourselves well enough to know that we don't always make good choices, right? Mm. We, we don't exercise enough. We don't eat right. I mean, there are lots of things that. And so I think it's it's worth mentioning that that yeah. Y- you may have a tendency to go in a certain direction, but consider the benefits of of that or or the choices that you're making. And being always digital isn't always good, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's just a we we can at least say that, even if we want to live in the certain yeah. houses that we do or eat the food we eat and not exercise and just, you know, do all those things. But recognize that there's a price that we're paying for that. And and of course those community ties are what I worry about, where we have developed an attitude that the outside world is scary, dangerous, wrong thinking, those people are terrible. And but you know, it's just fed by social media all the time. But but maybe if we did make the tough choice and participated a little bit more in the community that we would become more open-minded to what's driving those people. At least that's my, that's my dream, right? Yeah. I, I think, again, it's acknowledging the complexity of the world, the complexity of the human experience. Um, and there's no one path right? There's no one path with the way we're going to do things with technology. There's no one path with the way we should behave or act. There's no there's no right answer and wrong answer. There's just all of it. And, um, and it's up to us to sort of make those choices, to figure it out. And it's always going to be a mix and it's always going to be sort of imperfect. And that's the future. That's how we've always arrived at the future. I think we just, we saw the iPhone and we thought, oh, okay, we could just invent the perfect future, but it doesn't work out that way. Yeah, so I feel really conflicted about about work because my I work uh, as a trainer for professionals, and almost to a person, they love remote work. They just love it. They don't want to go back to the office, and so you know they communicate that with me, and I'm very sympathetic because there are so many things that are unpleasant about going to work, but I also recognize that. There's sort of signs that things aren't happening very well with all this remote work. Like we do seem to be, my clients tell me this, that there's a lack of collaborative work, that things aren't, projects are not moving forward, especially when it comes to innovation that seems to have really stalled out. So talk to us about work and what we, what you have learned about that. Yeah, I think you, you, you sort of hit it, Jennifer. It's tricky. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
it's, it is what we talked about before. It's complex. There's no easy answer. And everybody needs to know what the answer is because do I rent an office? How big of an office do I rent? You can't rent an office for some of the time, maybe, and mm-hmm. pay a some of the time, maybe price. I mean, you could do kind of like a office share we work thing, but the leasing companies, the office space, like it is, you're either there or not, right? How many days are people going to be there? Oh, well, some people come someday, some people come another. Well, that that hasn't really worked out very well, simply because of the basic physics of like, people need to be together to be together. And if you have some of the people together on some days and some of the people together on the other days, you're not going to get what you want. And so it's kind of for this half-baked thing where like mm-hmm. three out of five team members there and the other two are on Zoom and it just kind of doesn't work. And and so you have to acknowledge that, yeah, there are huge disadvantages to working in person, right? Commuting times, getting dressed, cold air conditioning, the cost of office space, the cost of furnishing stuff, the cost of janitorial services, the cost of you know lunch and 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 commuting and gas prices and you know tickets and all these things. And children, um, you know, childcare, ch- school drop off. Well, childcare, school drop yeah, school yeah, the, I'd say like the edges of childcare, right? I think there was this naive idea it's like, oh, people can work from home and care for their children at the same time. Well, like, yeah. Mm, that doesn't work. And so I think I think it's like individuals, workers, if you want to call them labor, to use economist terms, what they want is autonomy. They want they're like I know how to do my job, and I want the space to be able to do it and working on my own schedule so that I can pick up my kids, drop them off, take them to a dentist appointment, go play tennis in the middle of the day if I want to, and still do the thing I have to do. And management, the company, the owner, the government, whoever it is, is saying. Okay, but we still want to do the best work we can do, and we need everybody to do it. And a lot of the time, we need people to come together to do it together because it produces a better result or a faster result, or there are things that we cannot do remotely that are sort of task individually task-based that require people to come together. And that there's no replacement for that. Um, and so innovative work, creative work, um, collaborative work, which is, you know, again, increasingly well documented about how superior that is when people are together and in person. And the tricky thing of which no one has an answer and everyone's sort of trying to figure out is like, how do you have the best of both worlds? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I think when a company is like, we are 100% remote and we are never going back to the office, that's clear. It's clear what you're doing. It's clear what you signed up for. It's clear what that's going to look like. And the company's like, everybody back to the office or you're fired. That's clear too. Mm -hmm. You know what that's going to look like, Mm -hmm. right? And everything in between is just like, "Mm." Mm -hmm. Uh, all right, um, everybody in on Mondays and half the people in on Wednesdays and Thursdays will bring in lunch and like something will be gained and something will be lost in that. And so it's figuring out what are the important components of work that need to be done together in person and then figuring out how to do that while allowing flexibility is is really the crucial thing right and that's that this sort of grand experiment that everybody's dancing around and will probably be dancing around for years to come yeah it's funny too i i was just thinking about this, there's actually a real parallel for this. So one of the things that's fun about work, right, is just hanging with your coworkers, right? And I remember reading something about why would we want to go back to work 
you know, what's the point of sitting in an office? Are we really getting something from the motivational poster hanging on the wall? And I was thinking, no, the motivational poster sucks. But what you get out of it is the very funny joke that your coworker makes about the motivational poster. Hang in there, kitty. <laughs> right. And so, and that's what's really fun about work. And I didn't make the connection until just now, but that's one of the things you talk about about school that online school took away the thing that kids really love about school, and that is recess. And so, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> and I took that away from work, right? Yeah, it's Friends, sort of our yeah, jokes, right. uh -huh. stories, ideas, chats, coffee breaks, like, but those are stitched into the actual work too, because in that joking and whatever come these ideas or thoughts or information that you pick up just by walking by someone's desk and seeing something on there. And that's actually maybe it's maybe it's 10, 15% of, of work, right? Mm -hmm. But it, that, that's the glue that holds the rest together. Because again, it, going back to the education thing, it's like the, the rest of the, the work, quote unquote, the, the real work of like, you must deliver this report or you must do this work or you must do these things. That, that might be the 90%, but it's the 10% that allows it all to all those components of different individuals doing their jobs to work together into the sum of something greater. And it's really hard to manage that in space and in sort of this timeless, amorphous, non-physical way. I really noticed it now because I've taken a job where I'm working remotely and I have so little uh, interaction with my coworkers yeah. because we almost always see each other in kind of a supervised environment. I'd never realized that before. So there's none of this joking, let's sit in the back so we can make fun of this presentation. There's none of that, right? You're completely, yeah. And so I don't really have a relationship with any of my coworkers, which normally in a job, you start figuring out like who's cool, who's funny, who's kind of weird and a little moody, right? I, who's I who's who's moving up? Who's moving down? Like, yeah. what, you know, wh who do I go for if I want to actually get something done? Who's the person that knows where to find things? Who's the person that's probably going to sabotage stuff? How do I manage this person? I mean, that's what work is. That's what management is. It's like balancing these personalities. You take that away. It's everything's just very flat. Yeah, um, very flat. That's a good description. It's, yeah. it's weird. You know, I, I have a, a friend who um she's a parent at um my kid's school and and uh and and she works for one of these large global software companies that's based here in Canada. They were one of the first companies to sort of proclaim that they were going entirely remote. And you know, at first it was like great, great, I can walk to the kids' school, I don't have to and now it's you know, it's like she's working with these teams that are spread all around the world. She's never met any of them in person, she doesn't really know them. Some of them just got laid off, so she's kind of on her own now. And there's talk about this company, which is not doing as well as it had previously done for all sorts of different reasons, some out of their control, some you know in their control. But like, there's this talk about the culture, the culture of the company. And the hard thing about a remote work environment is that the culture is the first thing to go, yeah. because it's really hard to maintain a culture on a screen. Like, what does that look like, right? Uh, and so she told me that, oh, they, they're kind of reopening the office as a drop-in part-time thing. 
you know, for collaboration. It's like, it's not back to the office, but the office is now kind of here if, you know, mm-hmm. we're still remote first, but like, but if you wanted to so collaborate with your team and we encourage that, but not a hundred, you know, it's not mandatory. Like it, it's, it's um, even there, even in the sort of vanguard of it, mm-hmm. it is um, the effects are sort of seen. Right. And the value is still there. Doesn't matter how innovative the company is or advanced they are, the products they make, like the value of being in that meeting and making those jokes and building those relationships is still there. You know, it's okay, I think, for some of us, if, you know, we have a few years where we don't work as effectively as we could have in other Mm -hmm. situations. But the thing that was really heartbreaking for me during the pandemic was the effect on kids. Uh, because they will never be five again, they will never be seven again, and they will never be 15 again and doing youth sports. And, you know, it was tough for them because those critical years when they're making progress. And so uh, along those lines, talk about teachers, what we learned about teachers during the pandemic. Well, it gets back to what I was speaking about before, which is that education is a relationship. And the teacher is the sort of conductor of the symphony of that relationship. They manage the relationships of the students to one another and the the sort of relational harmony of the classroom, which is sets the tone for the learning that happens there. And that is something that is, you know, their job. Great teachers are not great teachers because they know the most about one specific subject. I mean, they're brilliant professors that are great researchers, but but the best teachers can teach anything. And that's that's why it's amazing, you know, in, in a school system, the kindergarten teacher one year is the gym teacher the next year is the grade sixth grade teacher that year. You know, they can kind of move around because it doesn't really matter what they're teaching. They're given the curriculum, they can sort of, you know, get the teacher's guides and read things. It's it's the great teachers, their ability to to get those students to engage with them and one another and actually care about the thing that they're learning. Yeah, it seems to me that that is the crux of it. If we could maybe not necessarily understand better, but appreciate better what's happening with teaching, mm-hmm. because that that's what I do. And I think very often about the great teachers that I had in my life, uh, starting with my dad, and that if we could understand that a little better, perhaps we would appreciate more real life experiences because there is something really profoundly important about that relationship you have with a teacher and why we remember the teachers of our lives. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's something really fundamental or critical about that. They made you care. They made you care about the thing you were learning. Right. And they did that not by virtue of what it was they were teaching you, but how they were teaching you. They built that relationship between you and them and the the information that you turn into knowledge. And that's such a fundamentally empathic human thing. Yeah, I think about that. You know, clearly humans have been teaching humans how to do things for thousands of years. And you'd think that was something that we would know how to do really well. But but yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah. We're yeah. great at unlearning the things we know how to do. <laughs> I think that that's too true. So to go back full circle here, do tell us about what happened in the LA school district with providing digital devices. Cause I think that's, that's just such a clear case study of sometimes where we get things wrong. Yeah. I can't remember what year it was. I mean, I think it was around 2010, 2012, but you know, the LA 
unified school district, the sort of grand public school administration of Los Angeles, said, you know, we are we are the cutting edge and we've done a deal with Apple. Every student's getting to get an iPad. And, um, you know, it was a billion or $2 billion contract and every kid got an iPad and, you know, we're the, we're, we're the leading digital school district. And it was like within three days, like half the iPads were broken, missing, uh, or, or sort of hacked into by students so they could use them to play games. Of course they did. Whatever they, you know, even (laughs) my son, like the school, the Toronto district school board iPad he was given, like I would, I would look away for a second, you know, and he was five at the time or four. And he would be like tap, like Googling Lego sets to buy. Yep. Like that. Great. Digital education. You've you've trained him to be like another mindless consumer. Shopper. On Amazon or like, how do you, you know, this is what he had like figured out how to do. It was just like taking pictures of his face and like his butt. (laughs) Um, somehow i applied your kid yeah i know he's uh, (laughs) god bless him and like it 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 was this early test case um and sort of a large one of just how disastrous it could be to to seek out technology as the solution and put it out there without greater thought about the way that the people are going to actually use it i think that's what's sort of stunning to me about that story is that there wasn't that people didn't predict that there would be more failures. Because, yeah. I mean, you think about it for a minute and it's like, well, yeah, of course these things are going to happen. But somehow nobody said that during the conversations when those. Dis- but it's seen as a, it, it it's seen, and especially at that time, I think now there's more critical thinking around it, but mm. it, you know, giving computers to school kids, public school kids, it was seen as like an unalloyed good, right? This is, you know, we are going to prepare these kids for the, the economy. This is great. Like these are powerful tools, you know, p- public, private schools has them like, this is good. This is a positive. This is win-win. And especially for a politician running for school board chair or whatever, like great, fabulous. How could this go? How could this be bad? Let me mm-hmm. cut the ribbon, you know, yeah. show me where the ribbon is to cut. <laughs> we want to be cool. <laughs> yeah. We we're hip, cool- we're innovative. Yeah. Right. We want to be a cool school district. In our final circle here, let's talk about books because yes, we all books. said, oh, yeah, you know, digital books are going to be great. You can carry them with you on the airplane. And if it turns out the one physical book you brought was a disaster and you turned out not to be interested in it, then you've got, you know, 40 books on your Kindle that you can read. And yet in your explorations, you seem to see that some kids are preferring physical books, even kids who grew up in the digital era. They seem to prefer physical books. And why is that? Well, yeah, two things. One is that, you know, digital books, Kindles, Nooks, Kobos, whatever, um, they they are all that. You know, they're great. They work great. They have the light at night so you don't annoy your spouse with the bedtime light. Um, you They weigh nothing. You can take them on trips. Um, I think my... My Kindle is somewhere here in my desk. It's dead. Like this is it, and this this symbol oh. battery. Like it, there's nothing. <laughs> I charge it, and that's all it is. So it's it's bricked. It's 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 useless. But uh, anyway, it, it it does have all those advantages, and and you know you don't have to cut down trees and um, ship them, and you know they don't take up all the space and weight. And yet today, um, for every ebook that's sold. There's nine paper books that sold wow. pretty much across the board. Wow. Um, certain categories more than others. You know, romance books tend to be paperbacks, sort of tend to be more in the heavier in ebooks, but like hmm. 
nonfiction, fiction, children's books are vastly, vastly yeah. bought in paper. And why is that? It's because of the sort of everything that a book is. It's that feel. It's that tactility. It requires nothing but your your mind and your imagination. My son, uh, you know, he he found my old Calvin and Hobbes cartoons at my oh, parents' yeah. house a few weeks ago, and he will not put them down. I will find him in the morning with his underwear at his ankles, sitting on the floor. Like just starting to get dressed, reading yeah, right. that <laughs> got got that far and stopped. Or reading Dogman, or reading you know Diary of a Wimpy Kid, or whatever it is he's into now. And it's that again, that tactility. That it's it's a thing. You hold it, you take it with you, you hold it next to you. It's not just the information on the page. It's what brings you sort of beyond that. Yeah, I wonder what it is that these kids. I'm especially interested in them because they don't have the sentimental history with physical books the way I do, right? So, But it doesn't – see, that I think that there's a misconception uh, that especially those of us who are older, it come from generations that had grew up with or, or largely grew up with sort of non-digital technologies. We, we have this tremendous misperception that just because – a kid today likes using a phone or is really into video games, that that is going to be their preference for everything. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, what I found across the research of both these books is that the people who have the greatest sort of affinity and the earliest adoption for analog technologies are often the youngest ones. The people yeah. who are driving the sales of cassette tapes and vinyl records and film cameras and paper books are people who are like, in their 20s and teens and single digits, right? My daughter really, really, really wanted a film camera um, for, wow. her, for her birthday, right? I got her Ed Sheeran records and tickets to an Ed Sheeran concert, which is not cheap. Yeah, these days, yeah. Yeah, and why is that? Because for her, it's like she's grown up with a phone. She's grown up with Spotify. You know, she know, there's no magic to it. There's nothing new yeah. about it. She's not judging that technology is an old technology. She's seeing it as actually something different and distinct. Mm -hmm. She's not saying, oh, this is what I used my parents used to use. She doesn't care. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what the hell her parents did. She doesn't care what it, what it was like when I was a kid. She's just like, oh, this thing is cool. Like it spits out a picture from the top. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this book of cartoons is really funny. I'm, I'm drawn to it. I, he's not like, can I get this on an iPad? He doesn't care. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have an iPad, right? He's really into Lego. And there's some Lego yeah. sets that come with a show that you can download and you know it does a game and he's like you do it once and then he's like okay cool and now i'm just gonna break this apart and play just play lego and then like spread it all over the house mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really good point right that we tend to judge things through a different lens where but kids are they're not that way they're not seeing it through that particular lens they're right. just seeing what they like yeah, I, I got a typewriter when I was on book tour in January. I spoke at a typewriter store in Philadelphia, Philly Typewriter, which is a wonderful place. And it's it's great. It's the Smith Corona from the 1970s, probably around the year I was born. And like my kids, I, my daughter had a sleepover for a birthday and I left it out. And I wrote on it like, what do you want to dream about? Cool dad. <laughs> and like they were all like, I just heard them like clackety clacking away, you know? Uh, and it was like, this cool thing. Yeah. It's like, they don't know how to use a word processor, but what's cool about that? 
Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, congratulations again on the books. They're really great. I highly recommend them uh, to my listeners. Thank you. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Anything upcoming or places you want to refer them to? Anything? No, I mean, if if you want to write me or you could find me online on you know LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, Sax David S A X D A V I D, um, or email me. I have a website for whatever that's worth. You know, if you're like, oh, he should speak at our conference in San Diego, which I did once. That was really nice to come to San Diego and speak at a conference. Um, uh, so I do that work as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, love to hear from people. So if anyone hears this and they're like, oh, sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, get in touch. Feel free to reach out. I will write back. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show. It was such a pleasure to talk to you again. Great to be back, Jennifer. Yeah. And I love the book. So keep up the good work. Thank you. You as well. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.